All right. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier today uh, in chapel, I'm going to tell you a story today. That's really what we're going to do. Uh, and it's the story of Vincent Van Gogh's painting The Red Vineyard. And so um, I just want to invite you into that kind of headspace of, of hearing a story told. And I'm going to adjust this thing on my head here. Okay. Okay, so are we ready? We'll, do some, we'll, do, we'll have a little bit of time at the end for some Q&A. But this is Vincent and the Red Vineyard. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Ecclesiastes 1, 7 through 8. Part 1, the invitation. A great fire burns within me, but no one stops to warm themselves at it, and passers-by only see a wisp of smoke. Vincent Van Gogh. I want you to imagine Vincent Van Gogh in the last year of his life. See him buying his art supplies and mixing his colors and preening his brushes and stretching and preparing his canvases. Imagine his sketches like recipes lying face up on the table next to the easel. Imagine the eternal bits of color under his fingernails and in his beard and the deep seams of his clothes, his person, an accidental painting in the same spectrum of the canvas of the day. The pace and nature of his craft immerse him in a sensual world of color and shape and texture, and scent, and composition. It's hard to tell where the man stops and his art begins. The postman's letter, dated 15 November 1889, sat face down on the table by the window. Octave Maus, the founder of the Brussels Art Exposition, had extended an invitation which read, The association requests you, sir, to kindly let us know as soon as possible if you accept its invitation as the number of these is strictly limited and to inform us before 15 December of the notes and comments you wish to see featured in the catalog. The Brussels Art Expo was formed six years earlier in 1883 in response to the strict control and more commercial policies of the Paris Salon, the most prestigious art exposition in Europe. For over two centuries, art critics and buyers regarded the Paris Salon as the premier source of the best fine art. Many European painters became well-known in the art world because their work was displayed and sold at the Paris Salon. The Paris Salon's preeminence made it difficult for artists and styles rejected by the Salon to break into the public arena. So in response, Octave Maus, an artist and a lawyer, gathered a board of ten other artists and put together an exposition of their own. They invited nine other international artists to show their work as well, and they called themselves the Twenty. In 1889, as the 20 began planning the 1890 Expo, 
they discussed which artists should be found in their company, and they agreed that Vincent van Gogh should be invited, along with Paul Cezanne, Paul Signac, Henry de Toulouse-Lautrec, Alfred Sisley, and Paul Gauguin, among others. Each time Mouse's letter caught Vincent's eye, he sorted out the question a little bit more in his mind. The orchard blossom and the sunflowers for sure. Not the starry night though, it's not me. Not the cypresses either. Perhaps the red vineyard, yeah, the red vineyard. And after settling the matter, Vincent put down his brush and grabbed a piece of paper and wrote, Sir, I accept with pleasure your invitation to exhibit. Here is the list of canvases I intend for you. Number one, sunflowers. Number two, sunflowers. Number three, the ivy. Number four, orchard in blossom. Number five, wheat field with rising sun. And number six, the red vineyard. All these canvases are number 30 canvases and perhaps exceeding the four meters of room, but, bef uh, but as I believe the six together thus chosen will make a rather varied color effect, perhaps you will find a way of placing them. Vincent van Gogh, 20 November, 1889. One year before receiving Mouse's invitation on October 2nd, 1888, Vincent wrote a letter to his friend and fellow painter, Eugene Bosch. When Vincent wrote this letter, he had no idea how his seemingly passing references to Eugene's sister, Anna, and the vineyard near Mount Majeur would later be joined in an indelibly complicated part of his story. That letter, the one you're looking at, reads in part, I'd very much like to ask you to do an exchange with me of one of your studies of the coal mines. Is your sister Anna also doing the miners? There's certainly enough work for two people there. I believe that it's very fortunate for you that the two of you both do painting in your house. Ah, well, I have to go work in the vineyard near Mount Majeur. It's all purplish yellow green under the blue sky, a beautiful color motif. Good handshake and good luck and much success in your work, ever yours, Vincent. The vineyard that he mentioned became the subject of the only painting he ever sold during his lifetime, the Red Vineyard. And Anna, Eugene's sister, was the person who bought it. She and her brother were both admirers of Van, Van Gogh's work, but even more than that, they were his friends. Vincent once painted a portrait of Eugene Bosch, and then he included this portrait as one of the paintings hanging on the wall of his well-known work, The Bedroom. You wanna see that again? There he is, there it is. Anna was a respected Belgian Impressionist painter in her own right. In fact, in 1855, Octave Maus invited her to join as the first female board member of the 20. If Anna's friendship with Vincent wasn't the reason Mouse invited him to the exhibit in 1890, it most certainly influenced the board's decision. But it wasn't this friendship that got Vincent those four meters of exhibition space. It was his art. 
More than anything else, it was his talent as a painter, a gift that the world was just beginning to notice that opened the door for him to exhibit and then sell the Red Vineyard. Part two, the painting. Often when people think of Vincent van Gogh, their minds go to sunflowers, irises, or the starry night. To understand the story of the Red Vineyard, we must locate it in the greater body of Vincent's work and also try to understand the artist himself. The Red Vineyard hangs in the Pushkin Museum of Fine Arts in Moscow, along with five other canvases painted by Vincent. Although the Red Vineyard bears all the hallmarks of classic Van Gogh style, thick application, hatched brushstrokes, geometric outlines, it does not necessarily stand out as the flagship of the fleet in the museum or even the best of his five works which are housed there. Many who see the Red Vineyard at the Pushkin Museum and neglect to read the plaque on the wall beside it might never realize that they are looking at the only one of his paintings ever to be purchased while he was alive. Their gaze might be drawn down the wall to his cryptically autobiographical prisoners exercising after Doré, in which he paints himself into a line of inmates walking in circles in a prison yard like inchworms on the rim of a bucket. But the details we have about the Red Vineyard shine an interesting light on the artist's vision and his process. Vincent painted the Red Vineyard on November 4th, 1888, from memory, in the space of one day. The scene depicts the annual grape harvest in southern France, which is known as the Vendage. And coming from Holland, the Vendage fascinated Vincent. There was something settling about the rhythm of the ingathering, humanity and land and harmony. People worked and enjoyed a return on their labor. One scholar wrote, these grape harvesters were people Van Gogh felt he could relate to by the fact that they were working with nature in its rhythms and not against it. The harvesters in this painting do not look haggard, but they look bathed in the warmth of the afternoon sun, fulfilled in their work as part of the order of things. Vincent thought this was beautiful and he, he wished this for himself. In 1888, when he painted the Red Vineyard, Vincent was experimenting with the idea that color alone could generate an aesthetic that could capture people's hearts and imaginations. He was studying the color theory through the art and the writing of George Seurat, who believed the scientific application of color was like any other natural law. Seurat believed knowledge of how the eye and the brain communicate with each other could be used to create a new language of art based on the arrangement of hues and color intensity and shapes. That there was a scientific reason why art seemed to speak to the soul. And this resonated with Vincent, who used color not only to depict what he saw, but also to make it come to life. To stand in front of his works today, like the Red Vineyard or Starry Night, proves how the vibrancy and the movement of the color that he used 
seemed to give the work life beneath its skin. When Vincent wrote about the Red Vineyard to Eugene Bosch before he painted it, and then to his brother Theo after he painted it, he spoke more of the colors he saw than any one aspect of the harvest itself. It was the color that caught his attention. To Bosch, he wrote, it's all purplish yellow green under a blue sky, a beautiful color motif. And then to Theo, two days after completing the painting, he wrote, on Sunday, if you'd been with us, you would have seen a red vineyard, all red like red wine. And in the distance, it turned to yellow and then a green sky with the sun and the earth after the rain violet, sparkling yellow here and there where it caught the reflection of the setting sun. From memory, Vincent set out to capture the way he remembered the colors of the vintage and how they lay against each other. As it goes with so many artists, his composition developed in his mind before it ever made its way onto a canvas. His correspondences show him as a man who was always, always studying the world before him. He was always thinking, always looking, always imagining, always planning his next work. Ordinary scenes of everyday life moved Vincent. He wrote in a letter, even though I'm often in a mess, inside me there's a calm pure harmony and music in the poorest little house in the filthiest corner I see paintings or drawings and my mind turns in that direction as if with an irresistible urge Vincent didn't see the world as a collection of plain unaffected objects he saw the unfolding drama of the human story which was to him a heartbreaking story one example of this can be seen in how he wrote about a bridge that he wished to paint. To his brother Theo, Vincent wrote this, I have a view of the Rhone, the iron bridge at Trinquete, in which the sky and the river are the color of absinthe, and the quays a shade of lilac, the figures leaning on their elbows on the parapet blackish, the iron bridge an intense blue with a note of vivid orange in the blue background and a note of intense malachite green. Color, color, color. Another very crude effort, and yet I am trying to get at something utterly heartbroken and therefore utterly heartbreaking. For Vincent, the steel and the stone of the bridge were alive with color and he sensed in the people on the banks and crossing from one side to the other all the sorrows that they carried. The colors he saw carried the emotion. And because the emotion was palpable, the colors were vibrant. The red vineyard relies almost exclusively on the color spectrum between red and yellow. This was a deliberate challenge that Vincent set for himself. In his day, the idea of painting a scene from memory based on a desire to use a particular color spectrum was really backward for artists. Many artists, what they would do is they would take their easel outside and their paints and they would capture what they saw. 
Vincent wanted to capture what he felt as he tried to remember what he saw. And this is the very nature of impressionism. Painting not a perfect copy of the thing in view, but an impression of it. The artist's impression of what he saw in it and how he felt about it. Part three, the artist. Vincent believed that although his use of vibrant color made his paintings appear less realistic, they in fact seemed to look more alive. And they do. Somehow color and composition and subject matter combine to connect with people in ways that defy explanation. This is the mysterious, transcendent quality of art. Something in the liniment oil and the pigment breaks through the plane of the canvas and penetrates the human soul in a way that suddenly and inextricably matters to us. This transcendence is what compels a tourist in a museum to circle back to a particular painting she encountered that day for one last look before she leaves. She may not be able to say why, but she feels she must return and so she does. And feeling as though she is forcing a sort of disconnection when she pulls herself at last away, she vows to remember the piece, to carry it with her in the recesses of her heart. And she does. And that work never again appears to her as an ordinary piece of art. But now as part of her own collection. When she saw the work the first time, it belonged to the world. But by the time she leaves that initial viewing, it belongs to her. Some people carry with them entire collections of Renaissance-era masterworks by Rembrandt and Vermeer. Others can close their eyes and revisit the Impressionists of Paris, Monet, Manet, and Basile. For others, still line after line of scripture or Shakespeare effortlessly unfold from the recesses of memory, dating back to when we were children catechizing or strutting and fretting their first hours upon the stage. This is the intangibility of genius, to create work that transfers from the canvas or the page or the instrument into the heart of another person, arousing a longing for beauty and an end to sadness. This was what Vincent wanted to create, art that would transfer from his easel into someone else's soul to work as a balm of healing for the broken. He approached his craft as a pure artist, caring about the sacred work of creation and really abhorring the profane but seemingly necessary process of commercialization. He believed his unique style contributed something novel and valuable to the art world. But he also understood the tension that artists from every generation always have ever known. And that is that commercial success facilitates the ability to continue working. It costs time and money to make art. Money from the work he created could buy him time to make more work. Vincent's motives were not solely devoted to the work he produced. He also craved recognition, 
deeply. He wanted to be recognized for what he did. He wrote in a letter, I can do nothing about it if my paintings don't sell. The day will come, though, when people will see that they are worth more than the cost of the paint and my subsistence, very meager, in fact, that we put into them. His lack of commercial success discouraged him, as it would anyone who worked at something for the better part of a decade, believing it was his life's calling without ever making a dime. Vincent was prone to depression and mental illness, perhaps displayed most infamously when he cut off his own ear, or most tangibly when he spent a year in an asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. His psychological and mental struggles added a layer of despondency to his commercial failure. Though no one can say precisely what was happening inside of him on that July afternoon in 1890, when it seems he surrendered to despair and pulled the trigger, there can be little doubt that a sense of professional futility at least played a role. To add to the tragedy of his death, when Vincent shot himself, he was closer than he could have imagined to the recognition that he so desired. He did not know that his work would soon become a staple in the Brussels Art Expo. He did not know that just 24 years after his death, in 1914, his letters to Theo would be published in a three-volume set. He would have been in his early 60s had he lived to see this. He did not know that 20 years after that, in 1934, Irving Stone would write a best-selling biographical novel called Lust for Life, based on those letters. Or that 22 years after that, in 1956, Kirk Douglas would play him in a major motion picture based on Irving Stone's book, which was based on the publication of his letters that he had written to his brother. Now, perhaps none of those things would have happened had his life not ended so tragically. But his fame was growing in the art world even during the last years of his life. An increasing number of people who came into contact with his work presumed that they were looking at a rising star. He exhibited some of his work in 1888 and drew the attention of his fellow painter, Joseph Jacob Isaacson, who wrote an article positively reviewing Vincent's work in the August 17, 1889 issue of the weekly Amsterdam paper. Vincent was embarrassed by the attention and he asked Isaacson to please never do that again. But it was too late. Word was spreading. In January of 1890, just before the Brussels Art Expo, where he showed his work, art critic Albert Arrer wrote a lengthy article praising Vincent's work, saying this, in the case of Vincent Van Gogh, in my opinion, despite the sometimes misleading strangeness of his work, it is difficult for an unprejudiced and knowledgeable viewer to deny or question the naive truthfulness of his work and, and, and ingeniousness of his vision. In 1891, the year after Vincent died, art critic Octave Merbeau compared Vincent to his Dutch predecessor, the master himself, Rembrandt. 
And Mayor Beau wrote, Van Gogh does not always adhere to the discipline nor to the sobriety of the Dutch master, but he often equals his eloquence and his prodigious ability to render life. That same year, 1891, the year after he died, both Paris and Brussels held retrospectives of Vincent's work. Other retrospectives were later shown in Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Finland and Berlin over the course of the rest of the 1890s, making Vincent van Gogh one of the most celebrated artists in Europe by the turn of the century. Had he lived just a few more years, he would have seen that happen. But for Vincent, this was all unimaginable, and it was deeply frustrating. The longer he went without any commercial success at all, the more feverishly he painted. And the more canvases he amassed, the more objectively measurable his failure appeared. And when he held the pistol in his hand in that wheat field in 1890, gathering his nerve, he did not know that the world that he wanted to leave was a world that was beginning to love him as an artist. Part four, the expo. Vincent sent off his six paintings, and when the time came, the Brussels Art Expo arranged them as he requested. His canvases were displayed alongside the works of Paul Cezanne and Paul Signac and Henry de Toulouse-Lautrec and Paul Gauguin, all painters on the leading edge of post-impressionism. Though Vincent himself would become the most celebrated post-impressionist of all time, the fact that all these names were on the invite list together telegraphed that just as the impressionists of the 1860s and 70s overtook the realists and romantics who came before them, the post-impressionists would soon surpass the impressionists as the darlings of European art. Vincent's growing acclaim was not happening in a vacuum. He was part of a movement. Still, he stood out. One reason he became the face of post-impressionism was because his work was most acutely displayed, because his work most acutely displayed the characteristics of that era. Thick paint application, vibrant color, geometric compositions, distorted details, and he employed them all. He practically invented them. And as it happens with any artist on the leading edge of a new era, many embraced his work as exciting and refreshing, but many others rejected it as being inferior work born of youthful swagger with no respect for the discipline of the craft. The Belgian symbolist painter, Henry de Groo, one of the members of the 20, felt this way about Vincent's work. In fact, de Groo found Vincent's art so distasteful that he refused to allow his work to be hung alongside what he called the abominable pot of sunflowers by Monsieur Vincent. De Groo's uh, opposition proved to be very revealing. What seemed so obvious to him, that Vincent van Gogh was a hack, was a view the other members of the 20 did not share. Later at the expo's opening dinner when de Groo called Vincent 
an ignoramus and a charlatan, all hell broke loose. Octave Mouse described the scene as it unfolded. At the end of the table, Lutrec suddenly bounced up with his arms in the air and showed that it was an outrage to criticize so great an artist. Degrew retorted, tumult. Seconds were appointed. Paul Signac announced coldly that if Lutrec were killed, he would assume the quarrel himself. That night, the 20 expelled Degrew from the expo. He returned the next day, cap in hand, to apologize and was allowed to resign and to withdraw his work on his own volition. And Vincent had no idea that any of this happened because he wasn't there. He didn't know that these artists that he admired had risen to defend his honor and validate his brilliance. He did not know. Though the scandal with DeGruy drew support for Vincent from other artists in the expo, those who witnessed it could not help but wonder how his work would be received publicly because Vincent did not represent the broader commercial taste at the time. But Mouse and his group were interested in art that would inspire new conversations, not just satisfy old commercial appetites. And Vincent's work did just that. His paintings were, went on to be among the most discussed at the expo, and before the event was over, Anna Bosch, a member of the 20, and the sister of Vincent's friend Eugene, and Vincent's friend herself, purchased the Red Vineyard for 400 francs, roughly $2,000 in today's economy. Part five, the numbers. When Vincent learned of the sale of the Red Vineyard, he wrote self-deprecatingly to his mother. Remember, he'd never sold anything before. Theo informed me that they'd sold one of my paintings in Brussels for 400 francs. In comparison with other prices, including the Dutch ones, this isn't much, but that's why I try to be productive in order to be able to keep working at reasonable prices. And if we have to try to earn our living with our hands, I have an awful lot of expenses to make up for. A look at the output and volume of Vincent's work, especially in the last years of his life, shines a fascinating and heartbreaking light on the nature of his genius, his productivity, and the significance of the sale of the Red Vineyard. Vincent finished 860 complete oil paintings over the course of his life as a painter. During this same period, he also produced another 1,240 works in the form of watercolors and sketches and prints. And he wrote over 900 letters, 650 of them to his brother and benefactor, Theo. All told, this comes to just over 3,000 individual works of art and writing that we know of from Vincent. How much time does such prolific output require? For the sake of comparison, let's set aside Vincent's 2,200 
letters, watercolors, sketches, and prints, and consider only his 860 canvases. How does that production quantity compare to other well-known painters? Rembrandt produced roughly 600 oil paintings during his career, which spanned 40 years. Claude Monet, Van Gogh's contemporary, painted around 2,500. Wait, what does that say? No, sorry, 1,250 paintings over the course of 60 years. Paul Cezanne painted 900 canvases over 40 years. On average, Rembrandt completed 15 canvases per year. Monet completed 42 canvases per year. And Cezanne completed 23 canvases per year. Rembrandt, Monet, and Cezanne, and many others, had time on their side. They worked for decades. Vincent, however, did not. His painting career lasted only nine years from late 1881 through July of 1890. And that's it. He painted from the age of 28 to the age of 37. Before that, he worked as an art dealer and was a missionary for a time. The 860 canvases Vincent painted during his short career average out to 96 canvases per year. By comparison, his average annually doubled Monet's, tripled Cezanne's, and quadrupled Rembrandt's. But Van Gogh's annual average alone doesn't tell the story because his output was far from consistent over the first half of his painting life from 1881 to 1884, he averaged 21 paintings per year. But between 1885 and 1889, the second half of his career, that number jumps to 130 canvases per year. That works out to one complete painting every three days for five years straight, no breaks. This does not take into account the fact that during that span from 1885 to 1889, Vincent relocated a couple of times and had personal and medical crises that would take him away from his easel for weeks on end. The most fascinating year, though, of Vincent's career, in terms not only of output but also of health, is the last year of his life, 1890, the year that he sold the Red Vineyard. Vincent died midway through that year, on July 29th, of these complications from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the abdomen. During that half of a year, he produced 108 finished canvases. And so although that total is 61 less than his most prolific year, 1888, the year that he painted the Red Vineyard, and 26 fewer than 1889, the 180 canvases of 1890 does not represent a decline in production, but rather a stark increase in production. He died during the summer, which means he was on pace to finish close to 200 paintings that year. 
the monthly breakdown of his output in 1890 is even more startling. Between January and April, he painted just 18 paintings total, which means he could not have done much the following three months besides eat, sleep, and paint. Between May and July of 1890, Vincent worked at a frenetic pace and his art bore the evidence. In the St. Louis Art Museum, in the Impressionist Gallery, there is a Van Gogh from June of 1890 called Vineyards with a View of Auvers. And the heavily applied paint in the lower left corner bears the distinct impression of the cross-hatching of another canvas, suggesting that this painting was finished and set aside in a stack with others before it was completely dry. Of course it was, because this particular canvas was one of an estimated 42 that he painted that month alone. He painted another 24 in May and another 24 that July, meaning in the three months before he died, Vincent painted 90 of that year's 108 paintings, a three-month average of one finished painting per day. Imagine him, those last months of his life. He's a young man, he's 37 years of age. Although he looks older now, see him mixing his colors and stretching his canvases and preening his brushes. His sketches, like recipes, lie scattered around the room as the gaunt artist denies himself food and makes coffee from the carbon scrapings of burnt toast so that he doesn't have to stop. Imagine the eternal bits of color under his fingernails and on his beard and deep in the seams of his clothes, his person, an accidental painting in the same spectrum and fury of those three months during which he completed an average of one canvas every single day. Now, add back in the 2,200 other watercolors, sketches, paints, prints, and letters that he composed during those nine years. And we are left with a heartbreaking picture. Somewhere in that flurry of motion between the painter and the canvas was a man held captive by an insatiable appetite to capture the world that he wanted while being unable to connect with the world that he had and it seemed to be killing him. Perhaps Vincent summarized his struggle best when he said, if we're tired, isn't it then because we've already walked a long way? And if it's true that man has his battle to fight on earth, is not the feeling of weariness and the burning of the head a sign that we've been struggling? Part six the glory. What do we make of Vincent's story? 
What of the futility that seems to belong to any creative endeavor? Vincent said it, a great fire burns inside of me, but nobody stops to warm themselves at it and passers-by only see a wisp of smoke. What of the great burning fires in each of us that are perceived by others as little more than wisps of smoke? You have them, I have them. Today, Vincent's work has a place among the most celebrated and valuable art ever created. Entire wings of museums in the greatest cities in the world are devoted to his art and his influence on others who came after him. It would be though profane for us to attempt to resolve the story we just heard by noting his posthumous commercial success, how his portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for $82 million in 1990, 100 years after his death, or how his irises went for $101 million three years earlier. It would seem to miss the point entirely to try to add up how much his collective body of work is worth now. Because for Vincent, it wasn't the value of his collection that plagued him. It was the question of whether or not his time on earth would produce beauty that would transcend his days. Would anyone ever see anything of the fire that burned inside of him except for the wisp of smoke? C.S. Lewis said it like this. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Though no one can say for sure why Anna Bosch bought the Red Vineyard, it would certainly be too simplistic to say that it was because she admired the painting and wanted to own it. She certainly must have liked it well enough to lay down 400 francs for it, but she also knew Vincent's story. She knew his friendship with her brother and his friendship with her. She knew his struggles with sanity. She knew his ongoing fight to break in to the world of artists who were taken seriously who were acknowledged, who were met with some response. She knew his inconsolable secret. Anybody who was close to him knew it. And his secret is our secret too. And it's as old as time. A question as sacred as scripture, does my life contribute anything of value to this world? Ecclesiastes put the question to poetry. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Vincent left his work to be enjoyed by we who did not toil for it. But we remember him and we remember him not just for his art, but we remember him for his words and for his life and for his struggle. And we do more than we remember him. We relate to him. He is the striving man from Ecclesiastes, learning firsthand about the vanity of toil under the sun while trying to live and move and breathe and do his work under heaven. 
He chases after the sun and he never reaches it. He bears the weight of a creation subjected to futility and he longs for the renewal of all things. And this is the power of art. It happens in time and space, but it points to the eternal. It takes the objects and ideas it finds lying around the things of the here and now and it shapes them and assembles them into something that belongs to a world outside of time. The trick for the artist is to believe this is the true nature of his work, especially while he is in the process of making it whether it sells or not. Annie Dillard wrote, beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. The artist's work is to try to be there. We stand at glory's door because we know that there is wonder on the other side. And we long to see it ourselves and we want to show it to others. Sometimes this is the artist's work, to stand and knock on the door of glory and whenever possible, siphon little wisps of smoke from those places where we catch a glimpse of the light so that others might see and believe. What can we show each other of glory anyway except light and shadow? What glory can anyone see in any of us except for wisps of smoke, traces of a great fire that is burning but is hard to see? And is that not enough for now to show enough to prove there's more? Perhaps one of the greatest gifts Vincent gave was this conviction that this world in which we wait is not ugly. It's not empty. This belief bore itself out in beautiful paintings of ordinary people and places. The world he knew was a glorious one. It was alive with color and texture and wonder and he has helped us to see it. And in helping us, he has nurtured the hope that a truer, greater glory lies just beyond. When we look into the night sky, Vincent taught us to see the stars swirl in the heavens. And when the irises begin to rise, he gave us images to remember as we anticipate their unfolding into blooms that proves there is life in what the winter months destroyed. And when the dew settles on the field of poppies, he has helped us to see it as illuminated with a million little lights. And if you are ever in the south of France in the autumn, you too may lift your eyes and see it. A red vineyard, all red like red wine. And in the distance, it turns to yellow. And then a green sky with a sun, the earth after the rain violet sparkling yellow here and there where it catches the reflection of the setting sun. Thanks to Vincent, you may find yourself confronted with a glory that goes deeper than you expected. But even still, you will only be seeing a fraction of what is actually there. You will only be seeing a wisp of smoke. All things are full of weariness. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for 
the life and the work, the art, the writing of Vincent Van Gogh. And uh, Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had here to just walk through this part of his story. And uh, would you use the telling of this story and all of our hearts, mine included, to kind of work on us over the course of the day and the evening and the weeks and the months as we think about his striving to find something that he could never find and yet knowing in his heart that there's such a thing as glory. There's so much gospel in that. And uh, we thank you for this. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.